Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Today we've got something special for you. It's our friend Steve Mencher reporting on his very recent South by Southwest adventure. Steve took it all in. He's an NPR and PBS reporter who has worked for Carnegie Hall, run his own business called Mench Media, and created documentaries and podcasts. So let's get right into it and welcome Steve Mencher. Well, thanks so much. You know, I, I hope most of your listeners are, are familiar with South by Southwest. It, it kind of burst on the scene in everybody's uh, knowledge when it kind of launched Twitter in, in 2007. And I was all set to go. I was pretty excited in March of 2020. And if you can remember back that far, that's when the world collapsed. Mm -hmm. So wasn't able to go in 2020. Uh, they were fully remote in 2021. And everybody was pretty excited that there they were back in 2022, maybe 100,000 people or more showed up in Austin for this awesome, awesome festival. Wow. So give us a Twitter bio on South by Southwest. What is it? <laughs> Where is it? What happens? Okay. It's in Austin, Texas. Uh, it has always been during spring break of University of Texas, Austin. So kind of part of the town clears out and then people come from all over the world. And there are now kind of three main parts of it. And I've already gone over my Twitter character limit, forgive me. <laughs> but, there's three, <laughs> but there's three main parts. There's what they call the interactive or the tech part. There's a fabulous film festival where they have a lot of world premieres and American premieres. And then there's the music festival, which is the thing that more people know. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of bands come from all over the world and coming to South by Southwest, or I'll start to call it South by, because that's what everybody calls it, right. is really the thing that the bands, a young band wants to go there, and that's where they make their mark. So was it initially a music festival? Uh, I believe it was initially a music festival, and then the text stuff started to get hot as Austin became a tech center, mm -hmm. and the film festival uh, became hot, and, and so all three of those happened kind of all at the same time. Got it. You know, a lot of people were discovered at South by Southwest. Um, the White Stripes, Jack White, Amy Winehouse, which is so interesting because she's a Brit, uh, Katy Perry, Janelle Monet, and Haim, or Haim, or how, how do they, the girl group pronounce themselves? It's called Haim, but there's two versions, and I think they both pronounce it the same. And one of the sisters starred in Licorice Pizza this year, so it's it's a it's it's a it's a great little incubator for young talent down there. Pretty impressive. Absolutely. And you know who I discovered this year, and maybe I'm a little late, but uh, Japanese Breakfast, the young woman who fronts Japanese Breakfast, and that, that's going to be a breakout band. Uh, she's really going places. And I discovered her this year at South by Southwest. So there are a lot of discoveries to be made there. So how much planning goes into it for the attendee? You get there, you've got all of your literature. How do you decide how to use your time? Well, usually the best thing is right these days is on an app. So you can scroll through hundreds of things that are happening, and many of them happening simultaneously. If you put a little star next to it, then that'll help you filter. And the next time you come back to the app, all you'll see, if you want, is your pieces that you've starred. And then there's this really cool thing where things that are going to be very popular 
what they can do is you get three kind of put me in the head of the line chances. And so three of the things that you really think are super cool that you absolutely can't miss, you've got to be there at nine o'clock in the morning for the next day. And if you can press the button on time, you can be sure that that's one thing you're absolutely going to see. No one's going to shut you out. So definitely uh, the app these days is really the way to go. And you know, it's 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 more than a film festival and more than a music festival. It's also a discussion of current topics out of the worldly zeitgeist. And I, I, I saw so many interesting ones that I wish I could have seen. And I'll let you sort of give your impression of each of those. Uh, did you attend them? Uh, Alexis McGill Johnson, who's the CEO of Planned Parenthood, and ironically in the state of Texas, uh, Planned Parenthood has been under siege for so long. Did you get a chance to hear her talk, and how was that? I was so lucky. This was, uh, you know, the one of the things that I knew that I had to go to because Texas has a, essentially banned abortion. You, you guys may know that uh, Oklahoma, where a lot of the Texas folks were going today, uh, as we're taping, has also trying to ban abortion. But yes, Alexis McGill Johnson, and she was interviewed. You guys, I'm sure, are friends with Busy Phillips. Mm -hmm. uh, Busy Phillips was on the stage with her. And really, they talked about the fact that Roe v. Wade is going to be on its way out probably in June. There's going to be a, an incredible uprising. And she was sad, but she was determined. Uh, she feels that Planned Parenthood can lead the way toward the next thing for women's rights, and nobody knows what that's going to be. Uh, so I, I was really honored and pleased to be able to see her at, at that time at the festival, yeah. Wow. And what is the mood? What is the energy? I, I, I'm sure that you're initiating and taking part in conversations with you know, your fellow attendees, and you're, here you are in the heart of Texas, and yet you're this bubble of awareness and understanding of, of what matters on the planet. And, and so what, describe the mood for us. Well, you know, I, I saw a poll yesterday, and it wasn't the most accurate poll, but it seems like Beto O'Rourke is all of a sudden gaining some steam in his quest to be the next governor of Texas. And this is something that no one in Texas would predict as of today. Certainly even back in March when I was in Austin, people were pretty sure that Beto was not going to make it. He had said some things about guns that voters in Texas would not be happy to hear. But I think the mood in Texas is such that with all of the, the political uh, stuff that's going on with the governor and the lieutenant governor, uh, that Beto might have a chance now. So Austin has always been the part of Texas um, that is uh, unique. It's different than any other part of Texas. Uh, they Some of the people say that Austin isn't really part of Texas, but the fact that Austin exists and the fact that people come there from all over the world uh, really makes a difference. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear of something happening in, in a state and then there's a, a big convocation that, that's scheduled for the state, and people say, we're not going to go mm -hmm. because we want to punish the state. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not how they, they do in Austin. Mm -hmm. In Austin, they say, we're going to go, and we're going to make sure that our voices are heard. 
My friend uh, moved to Austin recently, and I said, well, how do you like it? She said, I love Austin. Unfortunately, it's surrounded by Texas. I'm, <laughs> I'm not used to that yet. But but they, they, even though they're in that sort of liberal bubble that is Austin, probably because yeah. of UT and its influence, but... Texas politics is all part of the discussion down there. Tell us about Mama Bears. Oh, wow. Well, Mama Bears is uh, just an amazing movie. You've got to keep your eyes open for it. It's a movie about a group of women. They're women of faith. They're women uh, for whom religion is just a super important part of their lives. But they're also women who are supporting their sons and daughters and uh, some of those sons and daughters might be gay, some of those sons and daughters might be transsexual. And as part of the run-up to Mama Bears, the, the folks who put on that film had a demonstration at the state capitol. And I was lucky enough to meet the most beautiful, uh, heroic 11-year-old girl named Kai Shapley. And I'd like to, for you to hear what she had to say at that rally. My name is Kai Shapley. My pronouns are her, she, like the candy bar. I'm 11 years old and I'm in the fifth grade. And I live in Austin, Texas. I was with my mom when she got a text that Texas is trying to classify gender-affirming care as child abuse. She started crying and then she told me, now trans kids like me might not get the care that we need. The Texas governor told child welfare agencies to open child abuse investigations into parents who are providing affirming care to their children. I'm afraid I'll be taken away from my mom. That's the worst thought of all of it. I've been asking adults to make good choices since I spoke out about the bathroom bill six years ago. And I'll keep asking them to make good choices. Whatever your gift or talent is, please use it to help trans kids like me. If you're a writer, write. If you're a director, make a movie. If your gift is making money, donate funds to the organizations here today. Each one plays a vital role in fighting for trans kids. And if your gift is knowing Dolly Parton, tell her to call me. <laughs> so do you have an update on Project Dolly Outreach? Um, I do not. <laughs> I wished I had found out whether she was able to get backstage to see Dolly Parton, but uh, I did not hear about that. Luckily, I was able to, to see Dolly perform at South by Southwest, and that was the coolest thing in the world. She played in the place where they perform, uh, Austin City Limits, and I am now the proud owner of a Dolly Parton NFT, uh, which is a little work of art. Uh, it's probably worth about a penny. It was number 86 out of 10,000. But Dolly is just uh, super amazing. She's got a new book coming out. She's got an album coming out. They'll be making a movie out of her book. And uh, this was the first time I got to see Dolly Parton, and I'm in love with her. So that was really great. But I hope Kai got to meet her as well. Steve, I don't want to jump away from uh, Mama Bears. Just to, to clarify it for us. So these are the parents, these are about the mothers that nurture these children who are different, Kai being one of those children. And yes. so Kai spoke, that, that monologue that she just did was done yes. at the reveal of this film at South by Southwest. And how did the audience react? And was there any outside negativity because it is Texas? Uh, how, how was that whole thing received? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, the, the setting for this was in front of the Texas State Capitol. 
It's a, a beautiful building, and it's the place where all of these negative, horrible things have happened. But the the energy, the spirit uh, that that Kai showed, and that uh, representatives from several different groups who fight for gay Texans, who fight for transgender Texans, uh, it, it was just heartening and. This is one thing. The abortion fight in Texas may now be over. The, the, a court has uh, closed off the last avenue, and that might be something that, that doesn't change right now. But there has been a court order to stop this horrible idea that parents would be criminalized for giving their trans kids uh, life-affirming care, that the kids would be taken away, that they'd be put into the broken foster care system of Texas. And that fight, I think, is still ongoing, and there's a lot of hope that that fight can be won. And Mama Bears is a film that puts that fight uh, front and center and really give you some hope. I'll tell you about one of the women in that film, the original Mama Bears. She has uh, developed a project where if you are getting married to the man, if you're a man getting married to the man you love and your mom and dad won't come, this Mama Bear will come to your wedding and she will give you the hugs that the mama would give you if your mama would come to the wedding. So that's the kind of really sweet and, and wonderful film this is that I think everybody should see. Absolutely. I mean, I, I really feel strongly that we are meant to spend our lives learning and we are each responsible for doing better when we know better. And often our worst fear is our fastest pathway towards expanding our understanding. So having a trans kid or a grandchild of color can reveal itself to be a blessing if you just open your heart and your mind. Ah, absolutely. And these families, the, you know, the, the movie's about their journey because each and every one of these families has been taught by their pastors that the Bible says that this is wrong, the Bible says that is wrong. There's only one way to look at these things. And their children had to teach them, mm -hmm. as you say, what really, how to open up to love. And that's what this wonderful Mama Bears film is about. So where, do you know where usually things come to festivals and they're not yet in distribution, but do you know where we would be able to find find this film? Well, right. Mama Bears, yet I'm not sure that they are have the distribution. I think they're going to be in your neighborhood cinema and, of course, eventually streaming. All right. So let's go from there to Dolly because Dolly is never just Dolly. <laughs> She's 360 packaging. She's got all aspects of whatever she puts out there. It's never just one thing. So talk about what, what Dolly is promoting at South by Southwest this Dolly season. Okay. Dolly is, is uh, I think she's been listening to the Facebook folks because she's no longer Dolly. She is the Dollyverse. And the Dollyverse has a bunch of stuff coming up. The so, Dollyverse. <laughs> Consider me a citizen. Yes, exactly. Me too. She has a new book. Uh, she and James Patterson got together, sat down, and they wrote a thriller uh, about a young uh, person who comes to Nashville to be a star. And I'm sure there's uh, murder and death involved and, and all kinds of things. It's called Run, Rose, Run. And that's a book that I think you could order today if you went on to Amazon. 
if it's not uh, in preview, uh, it's uh, you come to your house tomorrow. So that was the first thing. Then as Dolly started to work on this book with James Patterson, she says, uh, as she was in dialogue with James Patterson at the festival, she said she went home one day and decided that she was going to have to write some songs in terms of in the characters of these uh, folks who were in the book and she wrote an, an album's worth of songs uh, so that's also coming run rose run the album then she made an announcement at the festival which she was very excited about that reese witherspoon had optioned the the book and was going to be making the film so there's Run Rose Run the film. Uh, Reese Witherspoon's company is going to be making it, and Dolly's going to be in it. I don't think she's going to be the protagonist, who I think is probably a younger person. And then there was this uh, NFT drop and, and all of these things. Dolly, you know, one of the things I think when you look at all of these things, for, for a second you might forget that Dolly has also given away 178 million books in her uh, library, imagination library that she does, and, and she can uh, get those books to people all around the country. And uh, I had forgotten that Dolly uh, had also given a million dollars to help with COVID and, and to get the COVID vaccines and other things out to the public. So Dolly is all of that and more. And when you're in the presence of Dolly, it's just something that that lights you up and makes you feel the way that she is feeling uh, on stage you know you, she's very humble but has no reason to be <laughs> and, and recently the rock and roll hall of fame announced that her name is being considered for induction and she wanted to have her name retracted because she didn't think she deserved to be in the rock and roll hall of fame and they said we love you dolly that's not how this works your name stays in the mix so it might be that although she, she'll be a reluctant winner she'll and, and i can't imagine that she wouldn't be she'll get she'll get inducted anyway Yes, I'm pretty sure she will. She is someone uh, the the place was full. This place where they record uh, Austin City Limits was full to the rafters. Uh, they had a couple of warm up acts who were sort of forgettable. And then once Dolly hit the stage with her uh, talking to James Patterson uh, and then doing her concert, the place just went wild. It was really fabulous. Have you listened to the podcast Dolly Parton's America, and do you get the sense that Dolly is a little closer to expressing a political viewpoint, or is she still hoping to remain undeclared? I have not yet listened uh, to the podcast. I hear it's just fabulous. I know it comes out of WNYC. Uh, and in terms of Dolly and her political views, uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, w what those political views are, and I think she is careful uh, not to alienate any of her fans who may come from all over the spectrum. But I will tell you that there's a, another documentary film that they were showing at the festival that I haven't yet seen and that we can keep our eyes open. And it revisits uh, 9 to 5. Uh, it's kind of 9 to 5, the sequel. And it talks about the fact that all of those things that were done as comedy about how women uh, don't fare very well in the workplace, those are serious things that we're for the first time starting to understand and grapple with and try to change. 
And so the fact that uh, Dolly is very much, uh, I know she's interviewed in that film, and I know that in, in the sense that she is still agitating for women to get a fair shake uh, out in the world of work. In that sense, she's very political, and that being political is very important to her. I, I know that you heard Frances Haugen, who is the Facebook whistleblower, too, and I wondered yes. what she had to say and how the audience responded to her. Boy, the audience was, was very, very receptive. She um, talks about the dangers of Facebook. It's not merely that you're scrolling through and it takes you a lot of time and all of that. She talked about how Facebook could be deadly, that the kind of misinformation that's spread by Facebook has resulted in minorities being persecuted in places like Ethiopia and Myanmar. She talked about the fact that Facebook really doesn't care about us, doesn't care about us and our friends. What it cares about is making money. And if it can make money through spreading uh, misinformation and disinformation, she believes that, she, and she has the goods. She was there. She knows that's what they did. And that's why they did it. So she feels that Facebook needs to be reined in. Is it and your? I was going to ask about. you that opinion because you've been in the media for a long time. Yeah. Is it your opinion that ultimately they'll be forced to self-regulate or it's going to have to be Congress stepping in to provide the template? I absolutely think that self-regulation is not an option. Someone is going to have to tell Facebook that they have to do the kinds of things that they should have been doing all along. Is good labeling of misinformation and disinformation, of taking down the kinds of disinformation that have resulted in the death of people around the world. Better moderation in languages other than English, which is a terrible problem. These, uh, Facebook does not nearly have enough people to do the kind of moderation that needs to be done. So all of these things have to happen and all of them have to happen with with some government regulation. And that government regulation, I believe, is coming. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, do you think that we can, what can we do to promote the concept that when we are in, enraged, we need to disengage? Because they understand that the opposite works. They understand that people are more engaged when they are angry. What can we do to spread, just because like it's like self-care. It's, it's like we know not to drink and drive. If we just spread the message that if when you feel your face start to get hot, walk away from the computer. And I think, you know, the kind of basic fact checking that one can do by looking on the Internet, by looking for the source of information. I think, you know, Louise, I think that that's really the key to things is that instead of simply taking something you read or see and spreading it out to your hundreds or dozens or thousands of friends, look and see if that thing that you're spreading is true, is real. And once you've done that, you can say, oh, oh my gosh, I, I shouldn't be reposting this information to my groups, to my friends, because this isn't real. So I think the very first thing you can do is start to develop the kind of media habits that say, I'm going to check this out before I share it. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that she, Frances Haugen, very much herself said, this is step number one. And, and so I'm with her. I believe that. Well, I, I think one of the problems is just 
an aspect of human nature, which is that we're, we are more inclined to believe something if it's in alignment with something we already believe to be true. So I, I was listening to Serial, the new season of Serial, and it's about um, something that's called the Trojan Horse Letter, where a letter arrived somewhere in England that said there's a plot to overtake schools with radical Muslim uh, philosophies, philosophies or, that yeah. would that would be militant and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I think the letter was believed because in Great Britain, there is a tendency to uh, mistrust people of a different race or a different religion or a different color. And the letter was in alignment with what they wanted to, to believe anyway, which is let's keep England Anglo. And so the letter was believed. And I think the same thing happens to each of us on Facebook when we're presented with something that matches what our core is telling us must be true. And so we just spread it by saying, see, you know, I told you, because we all want to be validated and we all want our fears to be validated. And sometimes it's hard for people to say, I may be looking at this, you know, completely wrong. And in other words, Facebook is, we react to it. We don't stop and process. We just react. Right. And here's something I learned from Francis Haugen was that there may be one to two billion people in the world whose only access to the Internet Mm -hmm. is through Facebook. So consider that for a minute, that they have no way to even check the kinds of things that they might read on Facebook because that's their only access to the world outside. But once the Internet understands that rage is our greatest motivator, is the rest of the Internet behaving any better than Facebook? With their algorithms? Well, the thing that she brought uh, forward, and, and I think I know that she studied this, is that some of the rage that's directed against Facebook is the fact that they will not tell us how their algorithms work. Okay. If you're interested in how Google spreads information or who's searching for what or how they find it, Google can tell you. You can go in behind the scenes and look at that. The same is true with Apple. Apple's algorithms are open to people that they can see how they work. And so she said the thing that has to happen is that uh, Facebook has to no longer be a black box Mm. where all these things are hidden, but they have to open up. The algorithms, and if they do that, we would have a good start in being uh, figuring out how to better the world. Okay. I, I was looking at a list of the great music docs that b- got released at this uh, festival, and, and the one that I really loved uh, was Jazz Fest, which is the story of the New Orleans Jazz Festival, which is uh, iconic, and it was started by George Wine, who started the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals, the iconic ones on the East Coast. And I, I hope that's a good one because I'm looking forward to seeing it. Oh, I think you will love it. This is this is a film that's jam-packed with performances. I, I was reading some reviews of it, and the only negativity I heard about it at all was that there was just so much packed into it. It's uh, it's a love letter to the Marsalis family, mm-hmm. um, the, the dad, Ellis Marsalis, and all of his brilliant musical sons like uh, Winton and, and so forth. Uh, Jimmy Buffett, I believe, is one of the executive producers of this f- 
film. Uh, there's gospel music. There's a complete history of why New Orleans is at the center of so much jazz and why is this the birthplace of jazz. So I would say if you like this uh, kind of a, of, a, of a movie, you will love Jazz Fest, a New Orleans story. And I believe you probably, you two both probably know Frank Marshall. He was the one who uh, made this film. Uh, he loves the New Orleans Jazz Festival and it's really a, a love letter to New Orleans and to jazz. Did you see the Cheryl Crow documentary? I did. I had a chance to see it. And she was there. Um, You know, there's something that that happens at at film festivals where you you see a, a biography of someone and you know that they're involved. And you know that it's going to be a slightly sanitized version of the person's life. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I sometimes come in with that feeling. And yet uh, the Sheryl Crow documentary seemed pretty unvarnished. It talks all about uh, the difficulties that she has had with fame. It talks about the uh, depression that she has had, that sometimes she has had success and then has this darkness descend on her that she has to, to go past. It talks about her, her brief uh, encounter with cancer and the uh, horrible relationship that he had uh, that, that blew up with Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it really gives a, a, a pretty good uh, feeling about uh, who she is, why she's important, and of course, there's a lot of just fabulous music. And I learned, which I wouldn't have known, that she came uh, to the public view as a dancer with Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. which I thought was yeah. pretty funny to imagine her doing that. But then as she tells the story, it takes a kind of a Me Too twist. And it turns out that Michael Jackson's manager was uh, trying to proposition her and tell her that he would help her career if she only did this, that, and the other thing. And so it's it's really a, a, a portrait of our times and a portrait of a, of a performer who is just sensational. I, I, I like the movie. I thought it was well done. And that is headed for Showtime, correct? Yeah, yeah. She's really happy to have that uh, be on Showtime, and it'll be there this spring. Awesome. Now, do you ever get a chance to ask questions when you're at any of these events, or are, are you with the press, or are you with the, the, the rest of the population, or how is it... How is it organized and what access do you have to to ask follow-up questions? Well, you know, there's not a lot of access. There's uh, the the red carpet at South by Southwest is about, oh, 20 feet long or something. (laughs) So if you want to be on the red carpet, you put in your request. And I was turned down for just about every single red carpet but one. And that's okay with me because the one that I got to go to was for a film that uh, I think everybody is going to want to see. I don't know if either of you follow the the social media feeds of Chef Jose Andres, but he is now in Ukraine. He's been on the Poland border, and he, with his World Central Kitchen, is helping to feed the people of Ukraine uh, thousands and thousands of meals. He's saving lives. They're trying to get, I saw today in his Twitter feed, they're trying to get food into Mariupol. And uh, so this was an opportunity. Now, of course, uh, we would have loved to have seen Chef 
Jose Andres on the red carpet, but he was in Eastern Europe. So the next best thing was that we got to see Ron Howard, who has directed mm. this film, and it's called We Feed People. And as Ron Howard came toward me and with his producer, Sarah Bernstein, on the red carpet, I did have to ask him uh, what he thought of the film and why he had made it. And here's what he told me. Oh, awesome. I certainly want to shine a light on World Central Kitchen and what they've been doing. They're gaining more and more profile, but they're still a very new NGO. And they're, and they're moving into different facets of society, policymaking and things like that. Uh, I really hope that it's kind of an object lesson in what um, individuals can do. You know the difference that they can that they can make when they get organized. Uh, and yes, there's that kind of alpha leader, unbelievably charismatic, Jose Andres, passionate. But the film is not essentially just about him. It's also about um, you know what so many people gain from this by engaging, what they achieve through their engagement. And so I hope that that is a kind of also a call to action for, for people to participate. Okay, have you heard anything on the ground from Eastern Europe, from Jose and his group there? Actually, Nate Mook, who is the CEO of World Central Kitchen, just flew into Austin from over there. So they are, as um, the world is sort of paying attention to them, they are incredibly active right now. And one, one last jobs. question. Tell me, that there's been a lot of talk about the future of food and how food works on the planet. Do you see this as fitting into that question? It very much fits into the question. And, uh, uh, you know, Chef Jose talks about it. Uh, we broach it in the film. It's in the very nascent stages of him trying to say, look, we're thrilled to be able to help out in a crisis, but there's an even larger sustained problem and and that is hunger and and uh, let's talk about addressing that too and so i think that's next on the agenda in many many ways awesome and then you got to talk to nate right once i found out that he had just been with jose andres in poland and ukraine uh, i was really eager to ask him what was going on on the ground there and here's what he had to say so we've got teams all along the border providing tens of thousands, I think over 100,000 meals a day now. We've got teams within Ukraine as well. Um, I was in Lviv and in Odessa. We're just trying to get food out to folks that need it right now. Um, we are trying to set up uh, supply across the country. We're working with restaurants all across Ukraine and just feeding people during this really difficult time. Of You know, their country's under attack, their country's being invaded, and, you know, it's the people are standing up to defend themselves. Okay, tell me what you hope people come away with after seeing this film. Yeah, this film is, is a really valuable and important way to see behind the scenes of World Central Kitchen's work and, and, and the history of where we came about and the vision. And so I hope people learn more about our work and also at the same time um, get inspired to get involved. You know, it's not magic. You know, you can show up, get boots on the ground and, you know, just get just you know get get your hands dirty right and and start doing something and so i hope that that inspires folks to to do that to know that they too can you know can play a role thank you so much so did he take a staff a posse of people over there to do this work or did he hire people in ukraine and poland well, that's, and elsewhere that's the, that is the exact right question they learned when they were in puerto rico and, and other places where they have uh, gotten uh, the idea of what they want to be doing, that what they need to do is collaborate with people who are there on the ground. And the story they told was that I think when they were in Haiti, uh, 
They were serving this bean dish that Jose Andres used to love to serve in all of his restaurants. And the women in Haiti said, this isn't the way beans uh, should taste. <laughs> and they got out a mortar and pestle and they got them such that they, they were exactly the way the people in Haiti liked them. <laughs> and as soon as uh, Chef Jose saw this, uh, he figured, ah, I need to change the way we do business. When we come into a country, we need to collaborate with the restaurateurs. We need to collaborate with farmers. We need to collaborate with people on the ground in these places. And when we do that, we're going to be so much more effective. And that's what exactly what they're doing in Ukraine. Hundreds and hundreds of people who run restaurants and are in the food business are working with them to make sure that people in their country don't starve. Wow. So let's talk about some of the other films. You saw the Magic Johnson movie, or is it going to be a, a limited series? That's a limited series. That's really cool. It's going to be four parts. They played the first part. And, you know, in Southern California, of course, you guys are so familiar with Magic Johnson. But when he came out on stage afterwards and, you know, he starts to say, oh, well, I own this percentage of the Dodgers and I'm bringing a, a new soccer team. And I started out by uh, owning movie theaters. And, you know, he, he is a guy who touches things and they become magical and He's also a person who's been living with HIV for all of these years and is a super healthy and really forward-looking person. And this four-part series is going to talk about all of that. And that's going to be on Apple. I, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I just retired uh, a couple of years ago from 40 years in the news business. And people, when I do question and answer periods at the end of speaking engagements, people always ask me, um, how do you stand all the tragedy all the time? And what was the worst moment in your career for tragic news? And I say, hands down. Now, I lived through 9-11, the O.J. Simpson thing, uh, catastrophic brush fires, killer mudslides. I said the single saddest day in the newsroom was the day that Magic announced that he had HIV. It literally sucked the oxygen out of the newsroom. Now, these are grizzled people who have learned how to incorporate bad news into their lives, but it knocked the wind out of the news business, and I will never forget that. And that's when I realized how important a figure he was. I mean, yes. he's the first real, really person of note who showed us that you can live with HIV. Absolutely. And he is, you know, talks about how Anthony Fauci is a hero and a friend of his and really held his hand through those early treatments. And uh, this is, you know, he, he wanted to make sure, I think, before he was finished with his after, uh, you know, they showed the first part of the documentary. Um, and when he was done, he got up on stage and, and, and talked about it. But he didn't want to let that go un, unrecognized, that this is something he's lived through. The whole part of Los Angeles has lived through it with him. The country has lived through it with him. Do you think and that he, he was one of the first people to get experimental treatment and that's why he thrives today? I think the experimental treatment when he was getting it was still experimental, and, and he was uh, certainly one of the first, yeah. Wow. It's just, and it's been a beacon. Yeah. So let's talk about Gabby Giffords. Oh, man, talk about heroes, mm -hmm. you know, 11-year-old Kai Shapley and, and Magic Johnson. And then there was Gabby Giffords, who, who came to the documentary about her. She was supposed to be on the red carpet, 
And I was told afterwards that they yanked the red carpet uh, away from that film because Gabby Giffords, they show in the film how the bullet that went through her brain and through her skull uh, destroyed the, the part of her that makes it easy for her to have a thought and then to express that thought in language sort of like Bruce Willis with his aphasia now. They talk about aphasia with Gabby Giffords and that that part of her brain that used to be able to do that is no longer operating. So if she wants to answer a question, you have to give her the question beforehand and she'll memorize the answer and she'll give it to her. And the bravery that she shows through the course of this film, starting with her career and then with this horrible event that happened and, and killed several people and changed her life completely. And then at a certain point when she was having her operation, uh, it shows her husband up in, in space right when that was happening. And they talk about a long-distance relationship. <laughs> <laughs> this is one for the ages. But they are wedded at the hip. They believe that they can make a difference in gun violence in this country. And here was a little bit of good news. I, I know we're always eager for the tiniest bit of good political news. The fact that even though federal gun legislation is stalled, when the Giffords organization goes state by state, they are able to have some states make sensible gun control legislation for background checks, for ending the gun show loophole. So they're feeling like there is some hope now that they can make a difference in, in the gun uh, situation in this country. I hope her husband continues to be successful in the wackiest state other than Florida, which is Arizona. <laughs> He's bucking some headwinds out there, but he does such wonderful work, and I, I hope he has a long career. Yes, and the filmmakers who made the film about her, you may be familiar with them from the uh, RBG film. Yeah. It's uh, Julie Cohn mm -hmm. and Betsy West, and they're just uh, very accomplished filmmakers with a warm and wonderful heart. And one of the things they show in this film is Gabby uh, Giffords, who I did not know was Jewish, preparing for her bat mitzvah. So oh, wow. <laughs> really? something that you might not know unless you see the film. It was made by CNN and Time and Storyville, and I expect it'll be in theaters and also on CNN. Let's talk about another Texan, Richard Linklater. Who, I just love his movies. Oh, man. I Dazed and Confused, School of Rock. And I think one of the great unsung films, not only for him as a director, but for Jack Black as a performer, was Bernie. I love that movie so much, but it got very little attention. It was a spectacular acting job uh, played by a man who was, uh, and I use this term very, very gently, but I, it sort of describes his physical characteristics. He played it slightly fey. He was, he, there, were, there were feminine qualities to him. And when, when you know who Jack Black was, I just thought it was so understated and not a cartoon. And he was brilliant. And I was so surprised that I thought he's going to get an Oscar for this. Anyway, that's that's my personal thing. But No, I thought he was fabulous. What I remember for that is the walk that he developed. Yeah. Just had this walk a that lilt. was kind of lighter than air. Right. Brilliant, brilliant movie. And you'll be pleased to know that Jack Black is back working with Linkletter um, on the new film that uh, debuted last week on Netflix. It's called Apollo Ten and a Half, 
A Space Age Childhood and Jack Black is the narrator of this film, uh, narrating it as the child who has grown up. And I'll just tell you one part of the scene here. Uh, this young boy, uh, 10, 11 year old boy, he's playing on the schoolyard, he's playing kickball. And there's two guys who are looking, you know, maybe they look like maybe they come from the government. They've got jackets and ties on and everything. And they call him over afterwards and they tell him, uh, this is all animated, by the way. And they tell him that uh, the government has made a mistake, that the lunar lander, which is supposed to test whether or not they can uh, bring the, the uh, folks to the moon that summer of 1969, they made a mistake and they made it too small. And so, <laughs> and so he has got to go into the lunar lander. He's got to be trained. He's got to go to the moon and back. And he's not allowed to tell anybody about this. He's not even allowed to tell his own family. <laughs> and this is the, the setup of the film. And in the meantime, uh, when they start doing this moon stuff, it's also about the growing up in the 1960s. And so it has every board game, every television show, every song that uh, the two of you, I don't know, you know, you might remember those days. I know oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, we might. <laughs> and <laughs> it'll bring you back. It, it, it's just a, a fun thing that you can get if you have Netflix just uh, watch it right now, watch it tonight. Describe the style of animation, Steve, because I just found it very engaging. It almost looks like they had actors and then they drew over them. Well, you know, it's it's different. The, the last animated film he did was exactly what you're describing. In fact, they did use actors and it was that kind of animation. With this, these are fully drawn characters and backgrounds and what's interesting to me is that in order to do this kind of animation which involves thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, backgrounds and characters and everything they had the work done all over the world so there were teams in the far east there were teams in amsterdam there were teams in the united states and all of these things came together. And yes, it absolutely looks, especially with the lighting and everything, it looks like these are things that happened in real life and then they somehow made them into animation. But it's a little different than the kind of animation that, that starts with uh, real pictures and then turns those into uh, animated uh, but there's, characters. But there's so much detail of expression. And if, like, oh. let's say it's a car scene, if you look at every person in the car, they each have a different expression. They're reacting to the same thing in their own, based on their own personality. It's so specific. There's so much detail when you talk about all the board games and all the TV shows and all the albums. <laughs> Even when they put a Capitol record down, it's the Capitol logo. There's yep. just people are going to watch this over and over again. I know, and the and again to me the the lighting, the the simulation. You're saying people in a car. Mm -hmm. The person in the driver's seat might have a light coming at them oh. from a certain angle. Person sitting in the back has a light coming at them from a different angle. And every time there's that change of expression or change of lighting, it's done brilliantly. It's just a fun, fun movie. Well, I, I think one of the um great heroes of the fight for First Amendment rights around the world is a Filipino journalist. She's a Nobel Prize winner, Maria Ress. She's fighting against what happens when we let authoritarianism go 
to Seed, which is the Duterte regime over there. She was in jail. And I saw a, a documentary about her. I don't know if it was on Netflix, but it was so compelling. And I thought there are very few journalists in the world that have put themselves in harm's way like Maria has to fight against and fight for freedom of the press and against totalitarian treatment of the media in these various countries. And she was there to speak, correct? Well, she was there Uh, via Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. What had happened, and she explained this to us, was that she needed seven approvals in order to get onto a plane and come to Texas. And the way the government worked it, they gave her the six approvals and she got to the airport. She was supposed to get that seventh approval. And they waited till the last plane that could have brought her to Austin had left. The Filipino Um, government? Yes. Until she got her last approval. So she was there and she is the kind of a brave person who is willing to risk her life to stand up to this murderous dictator. And, you know, after Duterte goes, and I don't know if it's that he has made a choice or if he's somehow term limited, it turns out that it looks most likely that the Marcos family is coming oh, back. Oh, Lord, out. please. And a, well, a son shoes will be back in of fashion. Ferdinand Marcos is the likely next president oh. of the Philippines, someone who seems like he's okay with the kind of murderous regime that Duterte has. She, she had also is worried about social media mm-hmm. in the same way that Frances Haugen is. And she uh, name checked a book that I need to go and check out of the library. Uh, has a very clever name. It's called Weapons of Math Destruction. And uh-huh. I'm not lisping. It's <laughs> Math <laughs> Destruction. Mm-hmm. And it's by Kathy O'Neill. And it's all about how social media kind of turns us into Pavlov's dogs and as a behavior modification system. And she is very worried that social media is being turned by tyrants into something that really is very negative in our world. So what did she talk about? The, the collapse of press freedom in authoritarian countries and stuff like that? I hope so. Yes, and very much so. And she talked about, she, she kept on quoting back from her Nobel Peace Lecture about uh, very much the, the rise of the strong man in the world and the fact that without a free and fair media that there is no check on people like Duterte, on people like Putin, on people like some of Orban in Hungary who may finally be moving a little closer to us after he sees what his friend Vladimir Putin is doing in Russia. So her talk was about how the media can and should and must be a check on this authoritarian uh, impulse. And here you are at an event that could not be replicated in the Philippines, could not be replicated in Russia, and we have to hold on to our rights to be able to express ourselves through our arts. Yes, absolutely. And and that was, you know, there was a lot of talk about the media and what's the future of media, the future of democracy. Uh, You you asked about the feeling there. There is definitely a, a feeling among the people in the media, at least, that our democracy is very much up for grabs. You know, if uh, 45 uh, becomes 47, uh, we will be in a lot of trouble. 
And uh, that is something that people at South by Southwest very much uh, felt and feel. And they feel like the only check on that is a strong media in our country and in places like uh, the Philippines where Maria Reza is willing to, to risk her life uh, to tell the truth. You being a journalist, I'm interested in your answer to this question. Uh, looking back over the Trump administration and uh, what we've seen about the January 6th investigation, what do you think about the way the media has performed? I think the Washington Post and the New York Times have sort of reinvigorated the importance of print media and done a spectacular job in both their daily spot news coverage and their investigative work, done an unbelievable a service for the United States, and thank God they're there. No, I, I certainly agree with you there, but the thing I'll say that is perplexing is that we can't really know what's happening behind the scenes. And so the idea that uh, there's a lot of anger now, especially in progressive circles, that is directed at the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, why aren't they doing enough? Is the president doing enough to push uh, Merrick Garland uh, at the Department of Justice uh, toward uh, investigating the kinds of things that went on January 6th? But it's the kind of balance that, that none of us w wish we would have to make ourselves because the balance is such that uh, President Trump uh, with his attorney general, made the Department of Justice into a plaything. And so whatever the Department of Justice now does in holding people responsible for January 6th, they have to do it with the utmost independence. But, you know, I'm not answering your question. The, the answer to that question is we can't always know. The media does not always know what is happening and how it's happening and what happens behind the scenes and the best they can do and and what excites me about what you just said is that there were things like i remember the day the new york times and some of the other media came out with the frame by frame picture of some of the things that they had been able to piece together from cell phone videos and from other things that had happened on January 6th. Right. And because of that, we know what has happened. And th this kind of technique was used just yesterday by the Washington Post be by analyzing frame by frame what happened in Bucha, mm. in Ukraine. They were able to prove that none of this happened after the Ukraine army took over, but it had happened while the Russians were there. So these kind of techniques that are being developed today by the media, as you say, by the Times and the Post and by many other members of the media, to do a new kind of analysis, to do a new kind of uh, looking at the way we see the world by using data and by analyzing that data, that's a really great thing that's happening right now. And what's great about that, Steve, is that they can counter Putin's argument that this was a false flag operation by the Ukrainians right. and doing that frame-by-frame -frame analysis, and they have the satellite pictures, plus all the reporters from CNN and MSNBC and the others on the ground there, they can sort of triangulate this stuff and say, no, it's not a lie, it's the truth. So right. I, I agree with you. 
Talk about one uh, one more film before we get to Willie Nelson, which you have to. Sure. Willie Nelson has to be your closer. He can't open. Uh, but talk <laughs> about Bad Axe. Oh, so, you know, documentary films count on what we call, for shorthand, access. Mm -hmm. You can't make a documentary film without the people who are in it feeling comfortable with you telling their story. And so uh, in uh, Michigan, there was, it really is a town called Bad Axe. Oh. And, <laughs> and they claim that maybe a rusty axe was found uh, at some time in the town's history in the 19th century. But um, as COVID closed the world down, uh, a filmmaker, uh, I believe his name is uh, David Reef. You'll have to check me on that. But he's Cambodian-American filmmaker, came from New York and said, I'm going to go home to Michigan and I'm simply going to document how my family's uh, restaurant stays afloat. And this restaurant is just a, a warm story of uh, a family that started out with a donut shop and then a sort of a diner and then was able to make a big success of its restaurant. And he was going to see, you know, what happens there. Is the family able to hang on by their fingernails when uh, restaurants are closed? What do they do to make money? How do they survive? And in the middle of making the film, again, what we hope as documentary filmmakers, there was the twist. And our president, who we're talking about far too much today, said <laughs> that the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic was the fault of people from China and people from Asia. And because of that, uh, anti-Asian violence in our country exploded. And so this filmmaker who was with his family in the middle of Michigan was able to document how the violence against his family almost closed their restaurant and almost ended their dream of being a success in America. And of course, the added uh, emotional impact of this comes from the fact that the father of this family had survived the killing fields oh. of Cambodia, the most awful uh, genocidal uh, craziness of uh, any country, uh, you know, in the 21st century, in the late 20th century, uh, after, of course, what happened in Europe in the 40s. And after surviving that, this family almost was not able to survive the kind of anti-Asian madness that gripped parts of our country in these past two years. And, and, you know, the, the sequel, uh, I think, is that the family did survive. They were able to pull through. But this is a film, I don't know exactly where you'll be able to see it, but keep an eye open for Bad Axe. It won the Audience Sounds Award so for Best Documentary, and it's just tremendous film. All right, wow. well, we will definitely look out for that. And I think we need to talk about Willie Nelson. <laughs> Everyone well, needs you know, a hug. I've been to, to South by Southwest maybe a total of four times. This might be my fourth or fifth time. Okay. And I had always heard these rumors that uh, Willie, in the middle of the festival, would call up his friends. They would all show up uh, on the ranch. <laughs> 
and some of them would play music and it'd be so much fun and of course this was an invitation that no mortal could ever expect to get <laughs> and so I was thinking oh well you know this is just something I won't be able to tell my grandkids but I started to look into it when I got there and it turned out that my uh, dream of this had been a little bit of a fantasy and that in fact uh, Willie out at the ranch had a paying concert <laughs> that folks with several hundred dollars <laughs> or who were lucky enough to score a press pass could go to. And uh, Willie's Ranch is about 30 miles outside of Austin. When he made, made Red-Headed Stranger uh, partly on this ranch, uh, they built an old western town kind of movie set that's still there to this day. And you can see the uh, chapel and you can see the saloon and you can, you know, all of that stuff is still there. And, you know, they sell these tickets expensive so that not too many people can come. And it's a day of music and, and fun. And, you know, uh, I heard people who I had only barely thought, well, do these people still around? Mm -hmm. You know, the uh, lost Gonzo band mm -hmm. who had some hits way back in the 60s. And uh, Michael Martin Murphy showed up to sing Pony Named Wildfire. Oh, my God. And, uh, and there was that. Japanese breakfast band uh, who is just really hip right now and you know I I don't know how much uh, you've read lately but there was a sad note that the week before this lovely gathering which they call the luck uh, reunion Willie's older sister at 91 Bobby, Bobby had died. just passed away yeah and there was some thought that was Willie really gonna get out on stage and be able to perform when the the sister who he loved so much who's just three years older than he is uh, had just passed away and so when he got out there with his sons to play there was a lovely projection uh, on the back wall that remembered her and her birth and and death dates and it was kind of in her shadow that they played uh, you know, if you've heard Willie lately, he's not got too much voice left. And yet uh, his sons, when they sing, sound, both of them, like a young Willie Nelson. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also have the Willie vibe, you know. So one of them had written a song kind of in honor of Willie's old uh, tune that he wrote, Roll Me Up and Smoke Me uh, When I'm Gone. You know, <laughs> the, the son had written his song was... If I'm high when I die, I'll be halfway to heaven. <laughs> uh, and, of course, the second part of that is, or else it'll be a long way down. Uh, <laughs> so this was uh, just, you know, the, it was a full moon that night, just about. It was March 17th, uh, St. Patrick's Day. And the, the, the feeling of Willie's Ranch is that these are Texans. These are people who are from Texas. The feeling of South By is that these are people from all over the world okay. who are taking part in, in a world festival. Mm -hmm. And so to, to have the opportunity to take part in both of those was really something that I won't soon forget. Wow, that is really magical. I'm so glad that you got to experience that. And one thing you should notice that Bobby was... She played with him. She was. He oh, would always yeah. call her a more gifted musician than him, you know. Mm -hmm. Actually, and they grew up together. And uh, you know, I've read his autobiography, and that I highly recommend that. 
if you're mm-hmm. interested in Willie Nelson. And it's just kind of like it since he's kind of always just very soft spoken, you get when you read his book what a badass that he truly is. <laughs> and that's how he was at, able to manifest this life of his just by sheer will and determination and confidence. You know, this is a guy who knows what mm-hmm. he's capable of doing and goes out and does it. Yeah. Boy, it was just lovely to be in his presence. And, you know, there's always the a rumor that starts, oh, is Dolly going to show up? Or oh. you know, Bob Dylan might have been in the area. You know, it keeps you there till the end. <laughs> and uh, so it took me an hour to get my car out of the parking lot. But I didn't care. I was I put everything that I had just heard onto my uh, playlist. Oh. And I just sat there listening to music and uh, eventually got home around midnight. It was Whoa. just fabulous. What a great memory for you to have. Well, we just want to thank you so much, Steve, for, for joining us and sharing all, all of your adventures with us. You're such a wonderful storyteller, Steve, really. It was uh, very compelling. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm, I'm big fans. Uh, I hope you both know. And uh, I really, uh, you know, this was uh, something that I have been looking forward to for a while. So thank thanks you for so having much. me on. Well, I next really year we're going it. to South By with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> let's so do let's, it. let's book early. Okay. All right, here come your closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter. We are at MediaPathPod and on Facebook where our show page is MediaPathPodcast and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. We would love to know what media you have been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. You can also go on Apple podcasts and give us a wonderful review. We would greatly appreciate it. We want to thank our guest, Steve Mencher. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman and Steve Mencher, and we will see you along the media path. You're so dynamic. Oh, well, thank you guys. Uh... I certainly uh, thought...